Good morning. Today's reading is from 2 Samuel 2, 1 through 4, and 8 through 11. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishobeth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Sherry. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new, we would love to be able to connect with you um, in any way that you would feel is appropriate, any information you need. Uh, we're glad that you're here, and we have lots of different touch points for you. Um, one of the things that we say about people who are uh, getting involved in the, in the community here at Redemption Arcadia is that we're really looking for three ways that you could be involved. One is to come on Sunday mornings. So you can check that box if you're here. Uh, you on the YouTube uh, live stream, you can also check the box, but do it with pencil because we might have to erase it. Sorry. Um, I'm just kidding you guys out there in TV land. Uh, second, second would be um, we'd like you to get connected somehow to a redemption community, which is our version of a small group. And we have, uh, I don't know, maybe 15 of those in, in, all throughout Maricopa County that you could get connected to that are specifically related to uh, the Arcadia congregation. You can talk to Pastor Tyler Thompson about that, or you can talk to Andrea, who is just up here uh, doing our hosting. And then the third way would be to serve in one of our ministries, either in the church or in one of our outward focus ministries. We have a number uh, of those as well, and, and you could find out about those as well. Uh, in fact, next Sunday... Uh, September 11th, we're going to do something that we haven't done before at Redemption Arcadia. We're going to have what we call Connect Sunday, and out on the patio before and after the services, we're going to have uh, each of our various ministries represented by uh, leadership so that you can come and ask questions. They're, they're, we're not going to necessarily sign you up to serve. There won't be any of the blood oaths or any of the other stuff that we do for that, but um, you can come and just ask questions in in, in a really non-threatening way, but we'll have all the different uh, options out there for you so that just in one place, in about 15 minutes, you can get as much information as you like. Having said that, there is a need that I want to talk about right now that we have, and that is this. Um, I, we've been kind of looking at what's going on with our children's ministry and how Emmy has been leading that, and, and that continues to come back from COVID and continues to grow and grow and grow. And based on our projections, we believe that in about six weeks, uh, we're going to be fairly full in the sense that we may not have enough volunteers to handle all the children that we'll have. And the last thing we want to start doing is um, closing uh, rooms for children because we don't have enough volunteers. We seem to be okay right now, but what we're doing is looking ahead and trying to anticipate for that need now so that we don't have to react in six or eight weeks. We want to be prepared for that. So if, if you've been thinking about a way to serve, if you've been thinking about children's ministry, uh, Emmy would love to be able to talk to you. So not at the Connect desk, which is over there, but out there at the registration where you, where you uh, sign in for children's ministry, there is a box there where you can, you can indicate your interest in maybe onboarding with our children's ministry. You wouldn't serve every Sunday. It would be an every other Sunday kind of a thing, two Sundays out of every four during, um, uh, during the month. And so we would love to be able to connect with you in that way. Emmy would get in touch with you. And if you're interested, she would take you through the training and onboarding for that. So having said that, let me pray, and then we're going to get into today's message, which is uh, the conflict that David experienced in the transition from Saul's kingdom to his kingdom and how he eventually 
is able to somehow unite the kingdoms after several years. So let me pray. Our gracious and holy God, again, we just pray that your word would saturate us and the illumination and application of your word would be done by your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would use uh, the vessels of the people who are here ministering and of language and uh, of music and everything that we do to help that message land in the hearts and the minds of everybody who's here this morning. We want people to know of your love and grace as expressed through Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for us on the cross and his resurrection. Help us to be able to do that today, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the midst of this 22-week series called We Want a King, looking at the lives of Saul, David, and, and Solomon, the first three kings in Israel. And in review, where we left off, we're kind of in the middle of David's life now and kind of putting Saul to bed and moving into David's life. We left off last week at 1 Samuel chapter 24. You'll notice the reading was from 2 Samuel chapter 2, so obviously we're going to be skipping uh, and summarizing a number of chapters. But where we left off was the narrative of David sparing Saul's life. He had an opportunity, an easy opportunity to be able to just eliminate Saul, take care of that. But David said, no, not my will, not my timing, not my process. I am leaving this up to uh, God to figure all of that out. And so he spared Saul's life and they had this nice uh, conversation which ended with kind of a deal between the two, which Saul eventually breaks, of course. But, but that's what happened the last time we were together. Today, as I said, we move through several chapters and end with our focus actually on 2 Samuel chapters 3 and 5. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or your um, iPads, you can turn to 2 Samuel 3. That's eventually where we'll end up and start reading Scripture. And our work today is about this transition of, Saul, of David's reign to become king over all of God's people uh, after Saul's death. And this transition was not smooth. You would think that this would be a smooth transition because the whole thing has been anointed and consecrated by God. But God also allows for the tension of human sin to interact with his with his sovereignty, and so we see that this transition is anything but smooth. It was violent, it was arduous, it was, uh, there was a lot of animus. But we also see how David eventually consolidated his reign and united the kingdom uh, uh, of Israel. But I want to fill some gaps before we get there. So, first of all, Saul, what happened to him? Well, his reign and his life ended, I would argue, quite sadly. And even after what happened in 1 Samuel 24... Uh, Saul decides that he still wants to try to kill David. So Saul's reprieve uh, to, David last, to David last week was, was brief. He said, all right, I won't kill you. But I, I guess you could even describe it as sort of a pathology. It just came right back to him, and, and he couldn't help himself. He wanted David dead because he saw him as a threat. And I'll say it again. I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I want you to hear it again. The accomplishments of others will only diminish you when you whine about them. When you whine about the achievements and accomplishments of others, the only person you're diminishing is not that person, which I know is your intention, but rather you're diminishing yourself, and we need to remember that. And that's what Saul did to himself continuously, over and over and over and over. Even though Saul's reign started really well and he was on God's track when he started really well, we tend to forget that because all we remember about Saul was how much he wanted David dead, and that's a bad thing. And so in chapter 26, David again spares Saul's life. He has a chance again. It's like a mirror of chapter 24, but it's a completely different, um, different uh, event. But he spares Saul's life as Saul continues to pursue him. And you would think that Saul would eventually figure this out. But this is one thing we have found that Saul is incapable of. He is incapable of discerning the obvious. Now, I know that nobody in this room would ever have that problem, but how many of you know people that have a problem with discerning the obvious, okay? Yeah, all right. Got that. So then in chapter 28, there are several chapters that we're, we have to skip that is unfortunate. I, I would love to do chapter 25 about Nabal and Abigail and how Abigail eventually becomes one of David's wives, and Nabal is, uh, he's a goofball, actually, 
Uh, and his name actually means fool, so you can tell how that story ends. Anyway, and then chapter 28 is just weird. Uh, Saul does a really embarrassing thing in chapter 28. After Samuel, the prophet, dies, and, and Samuel was sort of Saul's spiritual father, who Saul kept having these very difficult and challenging times with, with Samuel. But after Samuel dies, Saul decides by, by royal edict that he's going to ban all mediums in God's nation. All medium. now, now, I want you to understand what a medium is. It's not a clothing size. So the only way you can buy clothes is if you're small or large. That's not what he's saying. Uh, a medium is one who mediates conversations with the dead. So another word for a medium would be a witch. Okay, And so after he bans all witches, Saul travels to the town of Endor to meet this woman who is known as the Witch of Endor, and he goes there to do what? To tell her to stop practicing what she's doing? No, he goes there for her to call up Samuel. He wants to talk to Samuel again. He never takes Samuel's advice, but now he wants to talk to Samuel again. So, so Samuel's dead, and so the Witch of Endor calls up, calls up Samuel for Saul. So just a little note of, of contemporary application. I hear so much in political in the political world, uh, whether it's the Republicans in charge or the Democrats in charge, how much all of us common people hate the idea of rules for thee but not for me. That's kind of the political class that we have. They've got all these rules for us, but they don't seem to follow any of the rules that they have for us. And we think that's like some kind of a new 21st century thing. I want you to understand that rules for thee and not for me has been around as long as human beings have been around. And Saul was an expert at practicing rules for thee but not for me. By the way, David was pretty good at it too, eventually, in his life as well. So anyway, she calls up Samuel, and Saul tries to have this conversation with Samuel, and here's my paraphrase summary of that conversation. It's Samuel saying to Saul, Saul, you're an idiot. Why are you bothering me? And that was pretty much the end of the conversation. He was having fun in his death, so he's bothered by Saul. In the meantime, while Saul is kind of scratching around with all of this insignificant, distracting stuff, David continues to do well, even in exile. And finally, in chapter 31, the last chapter of 1 Samuel, Saul has one last bout with the Philistines, and it does not go well. They are routed. Saul's forces are routed. And Saul ends up falling on his sword so that the Philistines aren't the ones that actually kill him. And his and three of his sons are also killed, one of them being Jonathan, David's best friend. So it was an ignominious death. It's very sad. And then as if, as if that wasn't enough, the Philistines, when they found Saul's, Saul's uh, body, they added insult to this injury by defiling and desecrating Saul's body. And, and although this isn't really necessarily part of our series, it is in 1 Samuel 31, so I feel like I need to mention it. As ignominious as chapter 31 is, it doesn't simply end there with Saul's death. In fact, the last paragraph of chapter 31, it, it is actually a beautiful picture of redemption, metaphorically, and how in the end God always wins. We are told that some gallant men from Jabesh Gilead heard about how the Philistines had defiled Saul in death, and they rose up in the midst of great danger to recover the bodies of Saul and his sons in order to treat their bodies in honor in their death. And it's amazing to me when you begin to read the Old Testament, as we should, through a gospel lens, a, a redemptive lens, it helps us to see that while there are many very disturbing things that happen in the Old Testament, by the way, those are things that humans do, God even the supposedly mean old God of the Old Testament is actually a God of grace, redemption, and ultimate rescue. Metaphorically, at the end of chapter 31, we see that Saul is dead in his trespasses and sin, and yet his body is still rescued. And that's an incredible picture of what the gospel does for us. You and I are actually, in our sin, we're dead people walking. But if we've given our lives to Jesus while we yet die physically, Jesus has already rescued us eternally, 
spiritually and redemptively. And then when he comes again, we get a new resurrected body, which uh, Paul explains all through the letters to the church at Corinth that our resurrected body is going to be way better than the bodies that we have now. Can I get an amen from at least some of you? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. So no matter how bleak it looks, here's what we need to learn from this. No matter how bleak it looks, God is never out of the game. He's never too far behind. In fact, he isn't behind at all, even when he thinks he's behind. He's never behind. So you and I tend to get so focused on the here and now, on the horizontal, on the worldly semi-reality. In other words, we get focused on the finite that we forget that God is always working for us in the, the eternal, through the eternal, and in the infinite. And that's what grace does for us. And only God can give that to us through Jesus Christ. Anyway, Saul is now gone. And that means David is the new king. But immediately there is a challenge to his reign. So let's start by talking about chapters 1, 2, and 3 of 2 Samuel. So Saul's death triggers something that's already decided, right? We already talked about that. This has all been decided. God has done this. And so what's, what's the deal? Well, David is supposed to become king. God anointed David. Uh, Saul even affirmed this in chapter 20. He said, you are the next king to David. So even Saul affirmed it. And, and, and we could even say it this way. The electoral college has spoken, but this is not going to be a smooth transition to David's reign. This would be an ancient version. Again, you think, you just remember, nothing new under the sun. Solomon said this a lot. Nothing new in this world. We think it's new. This was an ancient version of a contested election. There must be something wrong because I didn't get my way. There must be some fraud going on. There were people running around saying, David's not my king. David's not my king. I think you get the comparisons. Okay. So the transition to David's reign becomes long, costly, and violent. And it foreshadows much of the trouble that we read about in the rest of the books of Samuel, the books of Kings, and the books of Chronicles in the Old Testament. Now, if you've been at Redemption Arcadia for a while, you know how often I like to recite the big picture history of God's people in the Old Testament. And I like to emphasize in, in 922, about 80 years uh, past the time that we're in right now, in, in 2 Samuel, uh, the early chapters of 2 Samuel, in about 80 years, there's going to be this divided kingdom that lasts for uh, more than 200 years. In 922 BC, uh, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom divided. This is after King Solomon, David's son, uh, dies. And, and I emphasize that a lot because it's an important part of the story going forward in both of the king's uh, books. But what I rarely mention in those historical recitals is that that division in 922 BC, 80 years in the future, is not necessarily the first time there was actually a divided kingdom. The reason is because Saul had another son, one who wasn't killed in the battle with the Philistines, and he saw the throne as his rightful place because he was Saul's son. Now, he didn't care what God or Samuel or David or anyone else had to say about it. So anyway, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David is told by messenger that Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle. So David is starting to think about organizing his new administration while behind the scenes up north, Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, and Abner, his advisor, are starting to uh, devise this way of having their own kingdom. So David's told that, uh, Saul and Jonathan has, have been killed in battle in, in chapter 1. It's an interesting quirk, however, that no mention of Saul's other two sons are, are made in chapter 1. It's only about Saul and Jonathan. I think that's uh, interesting. Uh, we also find that David decides, this is weird, we also find that David decides that the messenger needs to be executed because of how he handled everything. Very strange. Um, I read in the Old Testament about how often a messenger to a king will be executed after he delivers the message. He's just the messenger, okay? And so I've decided that I never want to be an ancient messenger for a king. I don't want that job. I imagine it would be really difficult to get life insurance and be able to protect your family against some untimely death and all that. Anyway, the rest of this chapter is David's heartfelt, gut-wrenching lament and tribute to Saul and Jonathan. But then in chapter 2, David heads to Hebron, which is 20 miles south of Jerusalem. It's in the region of Judah. So there's the southern region of Judah, the northern region of Israel, but it's all supposed to be Israel. 
but he's, in, he's 20 miles south of Jerusalem in the region of Judah, and he's anointed king. And that was our scripture reading for today that Sherry gave us. And David is joined there by two of his wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, but not by Michael, David's first wife. If you remember all the way back in, in uh, 1 Samuel, David had married uh, the daughter of Saul, Michael. He's not joined there by her. Hmm. And it is at Hebron that David is told about the men of Jabesh Gilead and the good things they did for Saul. And David lets those men know that they will be blessed. Uh, they will always be blessed for their good service to Saul and his sons. But then, dun, 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 dun. Do, do you like the um, sound effects? Never mind, okay. But this is, this is where everything takes a turn. Saul has another son up north, 66 miles north of Jerusalem, who did not die in the battle with the Philistines. His name is Ishbosheth, And he takes a throne in the north, in Israel. But there is supposed to only be one throne, and it's supposed to be David's over all of God's people. But now we have a northern kingdom, Ishbosheth, and a southern kingdom, David. And this doesn't work out that well. And almost immediately, there's a showdown be between the forces of each kingdom at Gibeon, about eight miles north of Jerusalem. No conversation, no negotiation. Let's just pull out our swords. And although David lost a few men in this initial battle of the kingdoms, it was clear that the northern kingdom was already on the run. They were, they were not doing well in this battle, even though they had ten tribes, and David ostensibly had two tribes. Just listen to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul, the northern kingdom, and the house of David, the southern kingdom, Judah. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. But reuniting the kingdom under David still took some time. And so that's what we start to look at in uh, chapter 3. And one of the interesting things we find out in chapter 3 is that one reason Ishbosheth's reign and kingdom was weak was because there was a lot of infighting in his administration. There, there was so much um, political fighting and infighting within his own administration that it kept distracting him um, from, from the bigger picture of what he needed to do to be able to protect his reign uh, from the outside. So here you go, another interesting application. Political infighting, I think, always has such wonderful, grand, powerful, and sanctifying results, doesn't it? Haven't you found that in the marketplace and in Washington, D.C., that political infighting is exactly where we get our, most of our best work done, right? I'm kidding. Some of you are looking at me like I'm from Mars, right? I'm kidding. This is called pastoral sarcasm. It's one of my great gifts, okay? So, um, how can we read this stuff and not think about today? That's my point. How can we read this stuff and not think about the 20th century or the 19th century or any other century? So some of you have asked, why are we doing this We, uh, we Want a King series? We've tried to make that very clear. The reason we're doing this series about people 3,000 years ago is because it's about us. Human nature has not changed. We're fighting the same battles. We just have different technology with which to fight them. We have the same sin. We have the same issues with false gods. We have the same challenges. We think the same way. It's amazing. So here's the paragraph that I'm talking about. And it is this paragraph that begins the unraveling of Ishbosheth's reign and David's consolidation of the kingdom. So it's 2 Samuel 3, 6 through 11. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Why have you slept with my father? He's accusing Abner, his chief of staff, of sleeping with his father's concubine. He's really mad about this. He has no evidence that this happened, but he's accusing Abner of doing this. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and you have not given, and have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David, oop, 
There's a flip of a switch. What the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth would not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So now there's this serious rift between the king and his chief of staff. And the chief of staff, Abner, decides like that to switch teams. And watch this negotiation. It's so interesting. Verses 12 through 16. And Abner sent messages to David on his behalf saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all of Israel to you. Now this is weird because Abner is the one that helped prop up Ishbosheth in the first place. Now he's seeing the writing on the wall and he's saying, all right, I'm switching teams because David's obviously going to rule on this thing. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you. This is David speaking. Now listen to this. But one thing I require of you, here's his negotiation point. One thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. That's David's first wife. He hasn't seen her for years. It's been years. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Patiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Now, verse 12 kind of grinds my gears. Like I said, Abner's the guy who set up Ishbosheth as king in defiance of David in the first place, and now Abner admits that this is David's kingdom. You know, there's no such thing as outward focus with Abner. It's all about Abner. But the negotiation, the only way David agrees to the kingdom and this power consolidation is if he gets back Michael, his first wife. And it's been all the way back in 1 Samuel 19 that David had seen Michael several years, Michael helps David, if you remember, helps David to go on the run, to go into exile from Saul. And now David has been king in Judah for more than a year already, and he still doesn't have Michael back from Saul's household. And he wants her back. Apparently two wives and some concubines are not enough for David. And yet later, later, if you know the story, maybe later David regrets asking for Michael back. We'll get to that some other time. Okay. At any rate, it's been so long that Michael has remarried during the interim. Paltiel, she, remarries, she marries this guy. And I admit, verse 16 for me is hard to read because it's so sad. This guy is heartbroken that now he's going to lose his wife to the king. He's devastated. So again, some practical application. We need to remember that the collateral damage of pride and insecurity and arrogance affects people. You know, John Donne said that no person is an island, and that's true. And, and I hear so much sin being justified by this idea of I'm not hurting anybody else. Yes, you are. Not to mention yourself. You're also hurting yourself. But you have no idea how your own sin, as private as it might be, is actually going to hurt the rest of your community. We need to understand that. So we end up having a deal. David gets the whole kingdom. Abner goes to politic those that he needs to get on his side from the north in order to finish the deal, and he's successful. And he comes to David in verses 20 through 21. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and I will go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that, they may and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And everyone lived happily ever after. Mm -mm -mm, not quite. After the deal is consummated, and Abner goes on his way, one of David's lieutenants, a guy named Joab, who plays a pretty big part uh, in the story of David, he shows up after the fact, and he's told that Abner had made a deal with David. And he immediately starts trying to convince David that Abner's just deceiving him. But the real reason is there's a backstory of the fact that Abner had killed some relatives of Joab. And Joab was really mad at Abner. This is a Hatfields and McCoys kind of a thing that David wasn't quite aware of. 
So Joab has this long, terrible history with Abner, thinks of him as a rat fink. I want to mention again, there are a lot of rat finks in the Old Testament. And so Joab decides to go and chase Abner down, and he does, and he kills Abner. Now, Abner really was a self-serving rat fink, so maybe he deserved this. But David was sad because the last time he was with Abner, everything was so good. And so they honor Abner with a service of mourning. But the transition still isn't complete. In chapter 4, the story continues. After the deal was finalized, some men thinking they were doing David a favor went into the northern kingdom. They didn't ask David about this. They just went into the northern kingdom and they found Ishbosheth and they, mar- and they murdered, not married, murdered Ishbosheth. And then they came back triumphantly and told David, hey, Ishbosheth's dead. We killed him. And David said, that's not how I intended for us to gain the kingdom. He was not pleased with what they had done, and so David had them executed as well. Just be careful what you tell somebody who has a sword, okay? So now, Ishbosheth is out of the way. That's good for David. He can begin the work of consolidation, but David really would have preferred this to be a less violent transition. Also in chapter 4, we're introduced to Mephibosheth, which we'll look at later. He's Saul's grandson, whom David lovingly takes care of for the rest of his reign, honoring a promise that he had made to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So we move on to chapter 5 to wrap up things for today. And seven years after Saul's death, David unites the kingdoms and becomes kingdom, king over all of God's people. I'll read and comment on some of this. First, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed King David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. And then 11 through 16. And Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and he sent him some cedar trees. These are very nice trees that you can build with. Also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took, here you go, more concubines and more wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, I love that name, Shobab, if we ever had a boy, I'm telling you. Shobab, Switzer, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Elidia, and Eliphalet, and then 17 through 21. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed over king of Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. Understand, there's a little bit of a grudge against David that the Philistines have because he killed Goliath, and we're going to find out more about that in the coming weeks as well. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. So David's kingdom is on its way. And we're going to Uh, go through several more weeks of what David's kingdom looks like, and there's just a little bit of sin involved in that, and we'll get to that eventually. The question then becomes, how do we put a bow on this today? And that's a good question. There are many angles that we could take. I thought about Philippians chapter 2. I thought about Romans chapter 7, and I realize I'm going to use those in later messages. We'll eventually get to those passages and other New Testament passages in this series. There's no way to avoid those, those passages in this series. Uh, But here's how I think we should sum up things for today. Uh, One of the things we see throughout these narratives and have seen for the last several weeks is that everyone has desires that they want fulfilled and that they believe should be fulfilled. 
And we see that they believe what most of us believe as well. If they would just get what they want, if they would just have their desires fulfilled, if they would just achieve, if they would just gain, if they would just get it, then life would be literally happily ever after. That's all I need is just this or that or her or him or the whatever it is, the degree, the wealth, whatever it is. And in this case today, the motivating factor is power. It's power. Power is a powerful motivator, a powerful motivator for pride and fear and insecurity in the wrong hands. It's a powerful motivator for sin in the wrong hands. And maybe for others of us, you know, our motivator is wealth or it's pleasure or status or substances or something else, but here it's really about power. But whatever it is, here's the problem. It's just a lie. It's never going to fulfill you the way you think it's going to fulfill you. I'm not saying, this is not an anti-ambition message, but it is a pro-contentment message. It's not an anti-aspirational message. It's not an anti-goal message. It's just a message that says, at the end of the day, when you're all done, you should be able to sit down and say, okay, I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay with where I am. I'm okay with who, who I'm with, and I'm okay with what I'm doing. And tomorrow's another day. It's a message about contentment, not ambition or anti-ambition. So whatever the problem is, it is a lie if you think that's going to existentially and eternally fulfill you. We need to understand that. It's a lie because these things will fulfill us. It's a lie that these things will fulfill us in the way that we hope and fully expect. And by the way, that lie comes straight from Satan. It comes straight from the pit of hell. How many of you love to hear about hell on Sunday morning? Well, there you go. Okay. And, and, and here's one of the things that we need to understand about these things that motivate us. It's not that these things are bad things. Power in and of itself, not a bad thing, not a good thing, not a bad thing. Just depends on what you do. It. Wealth, not a good thing, not a bad thing. Paul tells us in the New Testament, he says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's our affection towards power or wealth or whatever these things are that makes them good or bad. Now, I will admit that meth and cocaine are probably bad in and of themselves. I don't know of any good uses necessarily for those. But most of the things that actually we are chasing, we are the ones that can make them bad or profitable to others. It's up to us and how we view them and how we perceive them, how we use them. Are we using them in a gospel-centered way? Are we seeking uh, the counsel and the wisdom of God in how we uh, use our wealth, our time, our power, our status, our education, our relationships, our friendships, whatever that may be? Are we submitting them to the gospel? So here's the challenge and the irony. In our sin, in our flesh, our desires are truly endless. Uh, our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, towards the end of his life, started doing a lot of studying on aging and what faith looks like as you age. And Tom came to the conclusion that he believes most other people come, uh, come to. He came to the conclusion that as we age, our desires diminish. We don't have these desires, and we're not going to sin as much as we get older. It, it's going to be so much easier to live a life of faith when we get older. We're not going to be tempted by the same things. And what he found through his research and through his own life is that that's not true. Those desires are just as powerful. Those desires are telling us exactly the same thing. You'll be fulfilled if you just get this. Get the new iPhone. Bliss. Okay? And it's just not true. It's just not true. So our desires are endless. There's no lid or limit. Our desires are never capped. How much more do you need? And the answer is always more. Our worldly desires are never fully, permanently satisfied. So our desires never stop. No matter what we get, no matter what we achieve, no matter what we conquer, no matter what we master, our desires are infinite. But in a worldly sense, we're finite. Ecclesiastes, Solomon, reminds us that there is nothing in this world, the horizontal life that we live, that can truly fulfill us other than God. His entire book of Ecclesiastes ends with, here's where you're going to find fulfillment. It's in God. That's it. He could have just written a postcard. Instead, he wrote all these chapters. It's God. And I mentioned it already. Only God is infinite, eternal. And he's playing an infinite game while we play a finite temporal game that we think we can win. 
That's the problem. We think we can win it. Therefore, God alone offers the one, the only thing that can actually fill us up, that can actually truly complete us. And it's Jesus on the cross who appeared to others on the cross. While he's on the cross, it appeared to others on the cross that Jesus had lost the finite game that they were playing and they were celebrating. But then three days later, he came busting out of that tomb as if to say, I'm playing a different game. My game is infinite. And it's going to go on and on and on. And if you're playing by a different set of rules, there's no way that you can win this game. There are so many things in this world, good things, that appeal to our deepest longing. And Jesus also appeals to our deepest longings. The catch is, he is the only one who also offers freedom and true lasting fulfillment. Amen. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its truth. And thank you for teaching us through these ancient texts. Thank you for teaching us through the lives of Saul and David and Abner and Joab and Jonathan. God, help us to understand that as we read this, we should read ourselves into the narrative, but we should always see that in this narrative, it is uh, totally run by you and your sovereignty. So help us to use these narratives to remind us of who you are, who we are, and that we need to be pointed to you through your Son and by the filling of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, bless you, so we have come to that time in our service of response and reflection. We're going we're gonna to sing two more songs together as we take communion together. If our communion servers would please uh, come forward. We'll also have elders and staff and pastors and deacons standing in the wings. If you uh, need prayer or you have any questions, uh, also if you have other questions about redemption, you should head out to the Connect desk and, and talk to uh, Andrea as well. But we do this every week that we're here. We come to the Lord's table. This is, this is sort of a reenactment, if you will, something that Jesus calls us to of the Last Supper. Jesus, on the night that he's, before he's betrayed, he's, he's with his disciples, and he, and he takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I've done for you. After they had eaten, he took the cup. Interestingly, it's the cup of thanksgiving at that meal, and he took that cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. And we're told by Paul later on that every time we do this, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. We proclaim our need for a savior and we proclaim the celebration that we actually have when we get to walk out into this aisle and come forward the celebration that we have a savior so let's do that right now
sing this out. Jesus, your name is power.
Well, uh, it was great to worship with you this morning. I know it's normally one person, but today is intro Sunday, and Zach and I are going to do that together. And so that is, if you're new or if you've been coming for a little bit on the first Sundays, uh, we'll gather uh, at the Connect desk. We'll take a little hike around, no more than 10 minutes, just talk about who we are, uh, what is Redemption Church Arcadia. We'll land on the patio where there's coffee, and then uh, hopefully some staff are able to steal away and be there ready to greet you and meet you and get to know some more people who are on staff here. Um, so if you go and just hit the restroom or go grab a cup of coffee um, and then come back and meet us at the Connect desk, we'll, we'll get to do that. And then Zach's going to lead us in our prayer as we go into the week. Absolutely. And so as we head into this week, we just want to remember who our God is and who we get to serve, this, this Christ, this King. And so receive this as we go into our week. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only King, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Church, go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.